Hey guys, welcome to episode 7 of Pipe Hitter's Performance. Today we're joined by Chris Tabor of Sacred Heart University via Skype call. Now, this is the first time we've done one of these remote calls, so audio quality might not be quite up to par, but we're looking in to getting you guys some better audio quality for these remote calls in the future. Now, what we're going to be interviewing Chris about today is eccentric overload, as well as post-activation potentiation. And we hope that through this episode, we can shed some light on what these things are and how you can utilize them to really peak your performance and your training. So stay tuned, and I hope you enjoy this episode of Pipe Hitter's Performance. Hey Chris, how's it going? I'm Sam. Good, how are you guys? Formerly met, um, and obviously you know Tyler. Yeah, Today man. we have a few topics we want to talk about. One being post-activation potentiation, and the other eccentrics. Uh, just a little spin up on uh, Chris. Right now he's an assistant <laughs> professor at Sacred Heart University. Um, he got his Ph.D. at East Tennessee State University with uh, uh, exercise and sports science with uh, physiology concentration, and, and that was with Dr. Stone, correct? Yep. Awesome. All right. One and only. The one and only. All right, so let's talk about eccentrics a little bit. I know you were doing a study on that, I believe. Correct. So right now on the outside uh committee member on a dissertation that's looking at eccentrics in the squat and it's using weight releasers because there's many ways you can overload the eccentric. Uh, Some people use bands, some people use dumbbells and then drop them uh, after the eccentric portion, but we're actually using weight releasers. So it's a device load onto the barbell and when you reach the bottom of the exercise, the, the weights will actually release off the bar, allowing you to stand up with a weight that you can handle on the concentric portion. So the way I'm visualizing that is maybe something similar to like a, a monolift system? Correct. Yep. So you, you load these releasers on the bar on the top. The athlete will take it out of the rack. They'll squat down. The releasers will fall off at the bottom. Then they'll stand up with a weight that they can handle. And then if you want to do it on additional repetitions, you just have them rack the bar up and put the weight releasers back on, or you can just finish out the set as a straight set. Are these like the uh, the black ones that hang on the outside of the bar and they have the little scoops on the bottom? So that's they, correct. They, they yep. physically touch the ground, and when they touch the ground, that's when they release off the barbell? Yep. So they're they're at an angle until they hit the ground, and they just fall off. Where did, where did you get yours from? Uh, the website's called monstergrips.com, and a guy makes them himself, and he okay. creates those. So you can get those uh, from him. Yeah, I've, I've seen them on the uh, on the gram a couple of times. Yep. Uh, out at Oregon, we had an actual machine. Like, it, it was a bar that was suspended from this wire. You could load it up, and then as soon as you transitioned, like, into the, the concentric portion of the squat, it, we could set the load to whatever we want. Like, we could be weightless and then do jumps, like, right yep. into it. It was pretty wild. Yeah, those machines are great, but not everybody can 
afford all of those. So try and find some other means for strength coaches, or if you're out in the field, you can't take the machine with you. So trying to find many ways to do it. That's pretty awesome. And just for our listeners, just a reminder, when we're talking about eccentric and concentric movements for a squat specifically, your eccentric portion is going to be the lowering of the weight. And then your concentric is you standing back up with that weighted barbell. Right. And just, just a, a little easy knowledge is the eccentric motion is lengthening the prime mover, uh, mover muscles uh, of the task. And pretty much eccentrics are commonly used in preventing uh, rehabbing injuries or tendinopathies. But uh, I guess what, since Chris, you probably be a little bit better in this, but since what, the 80s, it's been in the strength and conditioning realm? Yep, they started to investigate it because they uh, found that you're stronger in the eccentric than in the concentric, and it probably has its own specific uh, motor pattern on the way down. So they figured that you might be able to train it differently. So the first studies looked at eccentrics compared to concentrics, and then they were looking at in terms of hypertrophy and strength, and they found it to be quite task-specific. And now... When we're looking at eccentrics, we're trying to take it into the performance realm where we're trying to elicit a, a response from the body that they wouldn't get from traditional loading alone. So adding in those additional overloaded eccentrics, is it going to cause an increase in performance, a reduction in injury? Um, these are things being investigated currently. We don't know all the answers yet. Okay, so um, in, as a strength conditioning professional, um, I, I, if I wanted to put some of this stuff into my program, uh, I kind of want to go after some, I guess, set and rep prescriptions with you, some, some time under tension, what that looks like, and kind of where I'd want to place it in my workout. I have an idea. So for me specifically, if we're talking about the squat, if I have a squat workout or some training, uh, I would probably do all my working sets if I had some drop drop sets I, I'd do them as well but as soon as my you know the totality of work was completed then I would put the eccentrics at the end uh, and I know there's not one way to skin the cat you might want to do it before it just I, I guess it, it all depends on what you're trying to go after yeah I think it all depends on the equipment you have available um, what specific outcome you're trying to uh, elicit from that training session so you could overload the squat eccentrically and many times people do this by slowing down the eccentric portion and then standing up quickly um, or you could throw them in as their own exercise later where you're trying to just do eccentric contractions by themselves to get the muscle to adapt that way right. so there's many ways to add them in right i don't have any releasers at this time it's something that i actually have looked at um, but we do do a lot of tempo work uh, as far as slow lowering um, and I probably came onto that with my background in, in some of the bodybuilding stuff that I've seen. Like the first time I heard the word eccentrics or thought about, you know, slow lowering, it probably came from some type of a bicep curl. Correct. Yeah. So they found that as you lower the weight slowly and you, you add in eccentrics, people found that there was a lot of muscle damage when you do eccentrics. And so the commonly held thought in the beginning was that you would get a better response if you could extend the eccentric portion, get more time under tension, more muscle damage. And then when the muscle would grow back, it would be stronger and hopefully bigger in the case of bodybuilding. 
And so now trying to adapt to sport performance, we know that there might be unique ways to elicit a strength response by adding in eccentrics. So by controlling the descent or by using overload on the eccentric with weight releasers or bands, you might get um, a specific response from the nervous system. So it's a little bit different depending on how you load it. In, uh, in your study specifically, um, do you have them doing any type of uh, slow lower even with the releasers or is just, you know, go down naturally, let it release and come up strong? So in the study, they're overloading with 105% of their eccentric uh, and then 80% on the concentric. So whatever they can do for a 1RM, you go above and beyond that uh, in the eccentric portion. So they do have to control it down, but it's not necessarily uh, dictated by metronome. We just let them control it down and then stand up as quickly as possible is what we tell them to do. Chris, have you ever attempted a one rep max in the eccentric squat? I have not. Because that sounds like <laughs> so, <one> shit. <laughs> so the, the commonly held number that, that's thrown around is about 120% more you can handle in the eccentric than the concentric. Okay. But again, could be quite you know dangerous to attempt to do a one repetition eccentric because when you fail, who really knows what happens at this point? So that's usually the number that's around the top range. And that 120 uh, percent uh, eccentric to concentric is that in looking at a concentric squat, like an Anderson squat, or is that just a full squat? 100. So let's say you do a traditional back squat and you do 100 kilos is your back squat because you know that's that's what you get for that day. Weak sauce. That would be your concentric max. And then your eccentric max theoretically would be around 120 kilos okay. if you were to try and test it out. So we base all the prescriptions for overloading the eccentric based off the concentric 1RM. Um, I know there's releasers for the back squat. Can they be used for the bench press? I'm thinking they can. Yeah, so the project that I'm an outside committee member on is on the back squat. And then here at Sacred Heart, we're doing the bench press variation of that study. So it can be used for both the lower body and the upper body, depending on the application. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. So this is a sports performance, I guess, related uh, test on eccentric. Um, As far as what you've seen so far... And uh, your past as a coach and just a student of strength and conditioning, uh, what do you see the benefits uh, of doing this as, as far as a sports uh, performance component? So there, there's many ways I think they can be incorporated. You have to be a little creative. They can cause quite a bit of muscle damage, which may uh, elicit hypertrophy response. So you might be able to use them in the general prep phase as a tool to try and get some hypertrophy. That hasn't been quite worked out yet, but it seems like one application. And then one that's been studied more is in strength phases so that you can overload that eccentric portion and then try and drive strength adaptations. And those will typically serve as the prime exercise that you would use. They're quite stressful on the body just due to how heavy you have to load them to get a response. Nice. Um, 
pardoning that, that that's pretty much all I'm, we can touch on about eccentrics. I, I, I really want to get into the post-activation potentiation stuff, but before we do that... What about, what about... So, talking about these eccentrics and overloading, I mean, when we do use things like bands and chains, we're basically deloading on the eccentric portion and then loading back up on the concentric portion. How, how do those two relate? Like your, your method of overloading and then, you know, those commonly use methods of deloading so bands and chains kind of change the force velocity profile of the exercise that you're doing so uh, what's typically thought of as the easiest portion of the squat when you stand up at the top no one really has trouble standing up there so once you get past the sticking point it gets easier and easier so bands and chains when used in a certain manner they adjust that load curve where You have that normal bottom position where it's probably straight weight or a little bit more. But as you stand up, you have to go through the sticking point and you can't slow down because if you do, that weight will crush you. So you have to really accelerate to the top. So that's working in a slightly different manner, trying to increase the load over the whole lift as opposed to breaking down the concentric versus eccentric portion. Yeah, and also the the bands and chains is all based on that theory of accommodating like accommodating resistance which is your body like trying to constantly adjust to an ever-changing load versus what you know what what he's talking about where the load is a constant right maybe a little bit more power development as well Mm -hmm. some speed yeah correct how so what what methods have you guys been using to actually test test these guys doing these overloaded eccentrics So we started in the squat, we did EMG on the musculature to look at muscle activation patterns. We also put them on force plates to see what the actual forces were as they were standing up. We could look at the time durations and the force durations, you know, between the concentric and eccentric. And then uh, we're going to use a linear Position transducer, the uh, the gym aware. If you've ever heard of that device, it, it yeah. determines velocity and power output. And we're using that for the bench press because I haven't been able to figure out how to rig up a bench press with force plates in it yet. So we're going to use the force transducer to look at bar speed, uh, velocity, acceleration, and then the output in terms of force. That sounds pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah, so um, let's go ahead and move into post-activation potentiation. Um, Tyler, you want to try to give a very simplistic explanation? Yeah, I'll give the simplistic uh, as far as a strength coach version, then I'll let Chris handle probably the textbook manner. When I think of post-activation potentiation, I think of uh, I'm trying to influence uh, ROF or rate of force development. I'm, I'm trying to use this thing called post-activation potentiation to optimize muscle force and power output for my athletes. But what post-activation potentiation actually is, the definition, Chris, take it away. So post-activation potentiation is a phenomenon where after lifting a heavy weight or doing something with a heavier implement, it upregulates the central nervous system and probably causes some changes within the muscle to allow it to contract more forcefully and more quickly. So you're causing an acute change within the body in response to a stimulus. So 
Uh, like Tyler said, he's trying to increase power production or force output of his athletes. And you can do this by following the potentiation model. And so it will cause some pretty pronounced acute changes if done correctly. And correct me if I'm wrong, just to help guys visualize what this actually is. This is something you'd see like with a working up to a heavy weight and then doing like a drop set, correct? Or no. So I actually have a list of examples that I've used with your programming with athletes in the past. So with the tactical population, I have done some back squats. You know, they're working. So we work up to a working weight and then get into some box jumps or barbell jumps or broad jumps, any type of plyometric right after that. Um, with bench press, I've used, um, so you do your bench press, uh, specific like an incline press, get done, put it in the rack, and then your spotter actually drops the, the med ball to you, and you pass it up as you receive for multiple reps. Um, with a straight bench press, you can utilize plyo push-ups um, immediately following that. We tried to, at Oregon, uh, all the credit due to uh, strength coach, uh, uh, coach Mark Dillon, um, he tried to, or he didn't try, we did, we peaked neural output of the Oregon softball players. Um, well, essentially we, we tried to think of a method, a method that we could recruit as many motor units as possible for the girls before they went out and started the game. Um, so we did like this little warm up, like in the locker room where that we went through a whole, you know, gen, gen warm up. We, we, we uh we really did the post activation potentiation when we started putting on weighted vests and we started doing skipping bounding and all kinds of ballistic type plyometric drills with these girls like immediately as they walked out uh to the field and we just noticed for the first two to three innings like man that readiness or the the way that the way that they would fire off the base or as soon as you know the ball hit the bat the way that they would take off was was faster um, than what what the girls normally did on a day to day. So theoretically, if I went from doing a box jump into a back squat, the activation that I get from that box jump will allow me to squat more. It's the opposite. It, it's actually it's it's that sheer load of the squat potentiates the neural capabilities for you to fire on the box jump. So it's it's we're increasing power output uh, with less load, just your load against gravity. Correct. But uh, Chris, let's let's talk about you, your. There's a study that's ongoing right now, or it's already been done. Talk to me about it. Starts uh, this next week. So the study we're doing again is going to be for the bench press, and it's a follow up to a previous bench. study that was done on the squat. So. Uh, everybody loves to use the squat exercise because it's really familiar and there's less done in the upper body. So we're doing some follow-up studies with some upper body uh, type studies. But what we're going to do is we're going to do a heavy bench press off the pins requiring you to recruit a lot of motor units quickly to get the bar moving. It'll sit right above your chest and you'll work up to two heavy repetitions from the pins around 90% of your one RM. You'll have a one-minute break, and then you will perform explosive plyo push-ups on a force plate. And we're going to look at the effect of that heavy-weighted bench press on the performance in the explosive plyo push-up over 10 minutes. 
So that will be the basis of the study. So what you you get done your bench, you do some plyo push-ups, you just kind of chill there for 10 minutes and have them do it again? Well, they're going to do one push-up every minute for 10 minutes. And we're going to look at when the potentiation kicks in and how long it will last for. Okay. And that's one of the investigations uh, in the study is how quickly does it happen when it, because potentiation there's an interplay between fatigue and readiness in the acute uh, window. So as soon as your fatigue falls off from the bench press, then your nervous system is upregulated, allowing you to express that power output. So we want to find out how early that starts and how long it lasts for. And so that's one of the outcomes from the study is to find out when that happens. Right. Two other examples, and you might have to correct me if I'm wrong on the second one. But uh, another one in the track and field world, solid at Oregon, a lot of long jumpers used also a weighted vest to do some some right. practice runs and jumps, you know, before their meet started. And I feel like whether, you know, I, I'm not 100% sure if they, they were they were doing it, you know, right before their actual jumps in the meet or if they were doing it like hours and hours before. So, mm-hmm. again that study would come in huge uh, benefit to, to some yep. of those athletes. The second, which I do believe it's post-activation potentiation, but you can correct me if I'm wrong, and it, you see it a lot with a lot of Travis Mashes athletes where, mm-hmm. you know, if they're working up to a heavy work set in the squat, so, like, if I have to front squat 200 kilos and I just got done doing 180 for a single – I would then load like 240 on the bar and then just hold it, do a rack hold, and then just okay. back off for a little while, then put 200 back on and then give it a rip and potentiate the nervous system to produce more force. It That could be one form, but that's not traditionally how right. they would be completed. Right. So it may be trying to trick the central nervous system into perceiving a heavier load and getting it more excitable, but in the the traditional way that they're done that that's probably not how most people would perform a potentiation complex right so uh, some questions back uh, to your study and I know it hasn't really kicked off yet but what do you think because you kind of talked about that potentiation or that ability to have a high rate of force development and and how you kind of manage it with fatigue and it's kind of like this as of right now it's really up to the art form of the coach as far as rest and as far as what what load you use but what load do you think you know not having seen anything yet do you think it needs to to cause a potentiation so for example on the back squat if i'm using this uh post-activation potentiation i I like to go above or right at 80 percent yeah, that's probably a good recommendation for trying to elicit response 80% or higher on the back squat and probably similar numbers for the bench press okay. are going to be necessary for the body to perceive that there's a stress that it has to get prepared for. If the weight was too light, you might get a small potentiation effect, but it might not be as pronounced or long lasting. So you definitely have to give a stimulus large enough to elicit a response. So if you're in a phase where people are training with lighter weights for more repetitions, you may not want to put potentiation complexes in at that time. They might be better reserved for later blocks of training when you're in a, 
a strength and power block or a power block where the weights are inherently heavier to begin with, that might be the time to throw in some potentiation complexes. Are there certain types of athletes or sports where this post-activation potentiation would be more beneficial than for others? So what we've found is that athletes who are stronger potentiate sooner and for longer than athletes that are weaker. So certain sports will inherently have stronger athletes. So your track and field distance runners are probably not going to potentiate the same way that necessarily the throwers potentiate. And that probably has to do with their training background and their strength levels. So you definitely need people of adequate strength to get the most benefit out of potentiation. This doesn't mean that people that aren't as strong can't do them, but it might be better served for the stronger folks when you're trying to maximize their performance. And the thresholds aren't set in stone, but they've found that somewhere around two times your body weight in the back squat and you know between 1.25 and 1.5 in the bench press are pretty good for the upper body numbers to let people know when you can maximize someone's potential from uh, using potentiation complexes. So if you had, say, like a swim sprinter who is a full body athlete, essentially, would you do both the back squat and the bench press to potentiate for yeah, that athlete? Yeah, you could. And you build them in on different days. So let's say you potentially have an, an upper or lower split or a push-pull day and you're in a strength and power block, you might have your first exercise be a back squat. Use a potentiation complex with, let's say, box jumps or barbell jumps. Then your next exercise might be the bench press. You might do some explosive med ball throws or maybe some explosive push-ups followed up after the bench press exercise to take advantage of that potentiation. Now, is this something that you would want to do uh, prior to competition or just in training? If you were going to use it before competition, you'd probably want to integrate it into the plan early on for competitions that are of less qualification levels to see the effects because there's definitely an interplay with the fatigue where if you did too much in whatever exercise prior, if too much fatigue is present, you might actually do worse. So it might be something to use a certain sports like Tyler talked about with the triple jumpers wearing a weighted vest. But you definitely want to experiment prior to competition time to know how they respond. You also have to factor in people's nerves, what they're doing that day, and, and what you're looking for from the performance. Yeah, Chris, I wanted to touch to you uh, kind of how I use uh, post-activation potentiation in the tactical world now that I've kind of crossed over from, you know, me being the power athlete coach to now this uh, tactical strength coach and how in all these meetings they like to use nice bud words like functional readiness or functional preparedness and i think post activation comes into play um i i primarily like to use it during my peaking phases so peaking power phases it's a little bit different in the tactical world um but pretty much right before deployment maybe four to six weeks before deployment i will start to utilize this in programs you know like an athlete spectrum program that has um some more athletic base movements heavier loaded movements than some of my other like metabolic conditioning programs and i use it in the peaking phase to try to generate some of that functional readiness and preparedness 
and ultimately using post-activation potentiation as just a tool in the toolbox to decrease injuries downrange uh, initially. Um, so as far as their ability to produce force in hairy situations, uh, as far as tricky landings, um, just them being in an environment uh, or an element that they're not prepared for, the, that that accommodating resistance kind of helps them have some base uh, preparedness for those environments. Yep, and that that's definitely a good way to apply that stimulus, especially when you're getting ready for deployment and you're trying to maximize their potential. Those weeks leading up are probably the most crucial and probably the most important time to use it. So with the potentiation, there might be small changes each workout. So let's say you didn't potentiate, you did a jump, they jumped a certain height. But in every week or every session you did use it, they jumped two to three inches higher every time, which could be an outcome. If you did that over six weeks, ultimately their physical preparation is going to be greater than if you didn't use the potentiation complexes. So it definitely serves as a good stimulus to help get them prepared for deployment when you're about to send them out. Right. Um, also, uh, I just wanted to touch base with you about I know your your study hasn't started yet but I have found that in dealing with different athletes of all different levels even even you know your D1 single A athletes versus you know your D1 double A I know they don't like to call it double A anymore but just how very individualized uh post activation potentiation can be just meaning that some athletes respond better than others. I, I know we kind of touched base, uh, you know, different types of athletes, but mm-hmm. just different people and how they respond and really how it's pretty much affected by, like, their strain or their fatigue levels that day. Correct. Yeah, so because the central nervous system plays a role, but there's also some adaptations at the muscle uh, at the the muscular uh, junction where the nervous system meets up, so there's probably an effect on calcium release. So maybe an increased sensitivity or uh, a change in the release properties. And there's also an effect on the myosin light chains, which it's a regulatory unit that deals with the speed of shortening. Inherently, some athletes are going to have a better predisposition. So your fast twitch muscle fiber types respond better to this calcium flux. So those strength power athletes are probably going to be better and compared to a more slow twitch dominant person. So that really gets into fiber typing, how people are built and their training history to really determine what it's going to work best for. And so uh, I think knowing your athlete, knowing what their training background is, and then knowing what their their predisposition for training is is going to help determine who's probably going to benefit the most from this activation. So someone with a very high uh, type 2 muscle fiber or your fast twitch, they're going to potentiate much quicker than someone that's more slow twitch dominant. And they'll probably hold on to that potentiation for longer as long as the overall fatigue is in check for both those athletes. Yeah, so when you're talking about you know the athlete that that's 
that can hold on to this potentiation a lot longer. I think of a weightlifter in the sport of weightlifting. Uh, with your time with um, East Tennessee State University, uh, for for those guys who aren't tracking that, that school has a weightlifting-specific program. Is that correct? Do you want to explain okay. how that school functions? So East Tennessee State University is its own university, and within it there's a exercise science program, and then there's a sports science master's and Ph.D. program. And so that's its own entity within the school. Now, within that university, they also have an Olympic training site. And that Olympic training site is designated for weightlifting, uh, bobsled, uh, skeleton, and then canoe and kayak athletes. So I worked with the weightlifters while I was there uh, under the Olympic Training Center. And so that falls under the university, but it's, it's really kind of its own entity within the university. Did you see any use of uh, PAP or post-activation potentiation when you were there with that sport specifically? So it was used, but in a different manner than how we've been speaking about it currently. And so the main way that it was used was that the way you sequence your exercises within a given workout would elicit a potentiation effect. So by putting your back squat first, and then let's say a push press or a, you know strict press after, you're still capitalizing on this post-activation potentiation effect without using a complex. And so what it's saying is that the, the larger muscle group exercises that you do first will elicit a response on the following exercise within the same given workout. So what we were talking about earlier were really the complexes were stringing together exercises to elicit a greater performance in the second exercise, but you can also potentiate within a given workout. And there's even a little limited evidence that by splitting up sessions within the day, a morning and afternoon session, that morning session has a potentiation effect on the later session in the day. So a little bit outside the scope of what we were discussing before, but that's kind of how workouts are scheduled to take advantage of it. Yeah, and I think that's good. I'm just trying to think like some of my operators and the, here's a here's a I guess a situation for you to dissect so from what I just heard from what you just said I'm thinking that if I start my workout with my back squat that my ability to potentiate more forced on like the snatch or a clean would be better so if I'm an athlete that struggles with speed and I want to generate more speed I feel like some of my guys would try to use this, but I also want you to talk about how speed plays a role in this, like you talked about with fatigue. Yeah, so that's a great thought in the beginning. Mm -hmm. If you do the back squat first and then you perform the snatch, but you also have to remember that with that back squat comes fatigue. And the first thing that will decrease when you become fatigued is the speed of the motion. You can retain your force qualities better, but your speed will fall off. And with the snatch and the clean being such a highly technical movement, fatigue added upon the athlete will adjust their technique, and it's generally in a negative manner. You typically don't get better at the snatch the more tired you become. So it sounds like it might work, but also if you're cleaning or snatching heavier you're probably not going to get the same potentiation effect. You'd have to lift a really light snatch or clean 
in order to elicit this effect. So it might be better to do them in the reverse order due to the technical demands of the Olympic lifts and the fatigue that might be induced by the back squat. So it seems like it might work, but in from a practical standpoint, might not be the best way to due to the fatigue and how highly technical the lifts are. Yeah, and that was perfect. That's actually what I was what I was searching for in your response because I I think this podcast is a great way to get information out there, but it, it also comes down to the knowledge of sequencing of exercises and essentially why you do certain exercises in a certain order. And, and definitely, I, I have a couple of friends that will probably listen to this podcast. I know Dietrich is probably one of them. He, he loves putting his squats before his, before his workouts. And God bless the dude. I mean, he feels stronger. I mean, yeah, he put 14 kilos on his total. Yeah, and, he, and he's going to continue to squat before he does his Olympic lifts. I mean, it's it's working for him. But ultimately, Dietrich's largest flaw is his speed, and it's something that yep. needs to be addressed. You know, as his training age increases, so that's something. You know, hopefully, when he listens to this, sorry, he, sorry, Dietrich. I mean, we love you, Doug. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, and. You know, you, you could always divide the sessions by a longer period of time to allow the fatigue to fall off. So mm. if someone really wanted to work on their snatch and they had plenty of time, uh, which no one really does, especially in the population you're working with, but they could do some light power snatches first to get the nervous system moving. You know, so 30 to 50 percent power snatches pretty quickly. So it's more of a speed strength exercise then back squat. And then maybe take a break and come back in the afternoon and then try and snatch later in the day when some of that fatigue is falling off. You're not going to get that acute potentiation effect because it won't last that long. And only the potentiation effect from the back squats acutely, maybe 10 to 20 minutes. So that'll definitely go away. But your nervous system will definitely be upregulated for that day. And that second session, once that fatigue is gone, might be the time to try and work on more of those technical aspects. Might be a way if someone wanted to squat first and then do the, the technique later. Yeah, but you have to make sure it's not too fatiguing in the morning or they won't be able to perform as well in the second session. Yeah, and like Tyler knows, like some of the operators like to overtrain, and that was kind of a thought that I had a while back, maybe doing you know, a, a two-a-day, breaking it up, just doing some technique, prim- technique primers in the morning and some other movements, and then coming back in the, in the evening to do my heavy Olympic lifts. Correct. Yep. Uh, also, I want to talk about fatigue and kind of the opposite spectrum. Uh, we just talked about how you could manage it with sequencing of exercises. Um, here's another situation for you, Chris. I have, You have a group of operators that had some, some night operations the night prior. They, they did some stuff, and they come in, and, and you notice that they're a little bit fatigued. They might be a little droggy. Um, you know, they kind of do the... Uh, They'll grab a foam roller and lay down and just kind of think about their lives. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So you notice that. Is there a way that you can use post-activation potentiation in the warm-up to try to expedite that firing of the nervous system? Or is once fatigue is there, fatigue is there? Yeah, once fatigue is present, it's going to be really hard to try and remove that fatigue in the short term. Mm-hmm. And the the way PAP is used is probably not in that way. So you probably wouldn't find anything in that session that you could do to remove that fatigue. 
but you could try to get them moving after they do their warm-up by doing a speed strength exercise. So let's say they're just dragging ass because they've been up all night, they didn't get enough sleep, but you still got to train them because there's a limited amount of time before they have to leave and get deployed. So there's no other way around it. So what you could do is take them out and have them do some uh, medicine ball throws over the head where they're getting a lot of triple extension. You're really waking them up. They're going for height or for distance, or you might do some jumps. They're not really extensive just to get them moving, get everything firing, and then go into the session. So it's not necessarily potentiation, but that's just getting their nervous system to fire very rapidly, and you might get a better session out of them. But you know, anytime fatigue is present, There's not much more you can do on top of it that's going to make it better except for rest, sleep, and food. And so a lot of the times these guys have a limited number of all three of these things, and you still got to get the session in. So you might have to set it up that way. Yeah, Sam, when you were deployed, uh, when you were in your places, was there any time that you experienced anything like this? Yeah, definitely. And I think most guys do if they, you know, go out and do 24-hour op, 48-hour op, you're going to come back and you're going to be tired, you're going to be fatigued, you're not eating nutritious foods, you're probably eating MREs, you're not sleeping very much, so yeah, you're, you're going to be drained, and then, I mean, typically when I would get back, if it was an op like that that was of a longer duration, I mean, I would sleep for close to 16, 18 hours, you know, Jesus. before before training again. So it's not yep. like I was getting back and getting right back into the gym. Is that why you think bodybuilding is so popular? In, in the, just because it's something of, uh, I don't want to say, it, of lower CNS demand? No, I think it's, I mean, I think guys just like a good physique. Yeah, all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Chris, well, we, we know each other from a weightlifting team. We, we both kind of started up. I think, Chris, you might have started a couple months before me, but same team, same coach. Uh, yep. Chris came from the bodybuilding world. And powerlifting, yeah. And he could barely put the bar over his head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. I was very uh, not mobile. Uh, I could not get my arms behind my head. Couldn't lock out the whole way on a snatch. It was it was a good time. That's awesome. Chris, how the hell did you get into Olympic weightlifting then? Um, I, when I graduated school, I stopped powerlifting. Um, I didn't really have one to train with, so I, I got into some bodybuilding because you can kind of do it by yourself. Yeah. And then I realized, you know, it's not not really for me. Um, so I got to sleep a lot. You have to eat on a regimented schedule, and that's pretty much all you do is you just sleep and eat all the time. So you're kind of like, you know, like a jacked panda bear. You just sleep, and you <laughs> eat all the time, and you don't go out and do very many things because yeah. you got to get rest in. So. That really wasn't for me, and so I looked up coaches online, and I ended up finding Leo, uh, Leo Totten, and he was near where I lived. It was only a 15-minute drive for me at the time. It was an hour and a half so, for me. So I called him up, and I said, <laughs> hey, can I come try this? And then he said, yep. And I showed up day one to a uh, basement in a high school, and I started lifting, and I met Dietrich and Tyler and uh, Adam Baton trained with us at the time, and we just all lifted in the bottom of this gym, in, in the bottom of a high school. It was in a weight room. It was all dirty and dark, and uh, that's what we did. We got so good so fast. That's awesome. Yeah, it was awesome. Um, 
So Tyler, uh, you're getting these uh, the Whoop bands, right? Yeah. You want to explain those a little bit, and then, you know, maybe we could talk about how that those Whoop bands and this post activation potentiation training method can work together. Yeah. Hey Chris, have you heard of the Whoop band? I haven't. So it's W H O O P. I know that they're we we I had a meeting yesterday. They're in like sixty percent of all Major League Baseball teams. They're the number one, um, what do they call it, uh, technical-wearing gadgetries. I, I don't know. I don't know. Like a, like a tracker, kind of like a yeah. like a Fitbit. But. So it's a, it's a wearable yes. uh, exercise metric device that someone will wear yeah. during exercise to kind of quantify what they're doing. Yeah, that's a good word for it. Yeah, you got that stuff. <laughs> so anyway, it, they're deep in the NFL. They're heavily deep in Olympic sports. And essentially, it's not a fitness tracker. It is a recovery and readiness tracker. So apparently they've got patent pending heart rate variability metrics that they've created on their own, uh, far superior to the Apple Watch, to Garmin. Uh, They're explaining to me that, like, the Apple Watch takes a measurement once every second, and theirs takes 100 measurements during a second yep. so like this sucker is accurate and, and it it's got a sleep coach it'll it'll tell you sleep quality it takes about six to seven days to to physically to learn you so um mm-hmm. their algorithm is that you know you need eight sleep uh eight hours of sleep but but once it starts to learn you you, you might run you know you might be accommodated to running on six and a half hours of sleep so it, it kind of learns you so to speak and and, and gives you a readiness uh, score every morning, just kind of where you are. You either you know, red, green, or yellow, and, yep. and yellow means yeah you can train. Uh, green like you're primed and peaked, and then red is you know you really need to take a look at you know eating, sleeping, drinking, because you're fa- you're you're pretty fatigued. Yep. Um, so yeah, I'm hoping to get a a whole bunch of those to test out on on some dudes here, and and, and see how it works. Um. I guess what Sam is saying, it's kind of like what well, we talked about with that warm-up question. If if you have athletes that are fatigued, how you know how how could you use PAP uh, to to try to wake them up? And we and we kind of just went over that is is that you can get them to fire a little bit, but once once that fatigue is there, you know, post-activation potentiation, I feel like it, it might yeah it might not be what's in the cards for today if you're pretty fatigued. I feel Correct. like you need a lot of gas in the tank to utilize that in your training. Yeah, and so that device might help you out. Um, but you might want to use caution when using the bands because sometimes you're going to get a red day and there's only a, a certain amount of days allotted before they have to leave. And you know that there's a given amount of work that they have to complete before they go. So you might not destroy them that day, but you're probably going to need to get the training sessions in. Now, uh, you know, sometimes you know there's going to be a lot of fatigue, especially if there's high volume. So that might be a good indicator on that really high volume time. But sometimes, you know, leading up to when they're about to leave, they're going to have to train regardless because there's that set day. It's T minus 10 days. That's not going to change. Just like an athlete, competition date's not changing. And sometimes you got to get that that session in. So 
you know that, that they have to get the session in. They're on red, but then you, as the strength coach, afterwards might need to use restoration methods to help them recuperate before the next session, okay. even though you get that session in. And you might back them off slightly on what they were going to do that day. Instead of telling them this is your absolute load, give them a range of loading for that day where, all right, you're not feeling that good. Let's drop off 5%, but still get this work in. And then we're going to provide you additional restoration afterwards, just because their time before they leave is not going to change. And you got to get that work in so that they're prepared before they go. So they might be great, but it might be a tool for you to know when additional means might be necessary to help them recover. True that. Um, any other cool uh, research projects you could have brewing in the future? Um, right now, we're working with you know, wireless uh, fitness monitors, ones that have accelerometers in them to look at uh, tracking performance over time. There's some that already exist. They just haven't really been validated against the gold standard. So gold standards, motion capture and force plate. And so, yes, they're giving you good data. They look pretty good. Uh, we want to get them validated so that we can look at readiness from a performance standpoint. So you have that wearable watch and that's great. And that tells you their physical readiness based on sleep, heart rate, probably body weight and a few other metrics but you also need some performance measurements. So if we can get some of these trackers or the wearable devices to tell you, you know, jump height, how fast you jump, how much force you produce based on your body weight and give you power outputs, that might be an additional metric that you can use in that uh, the whole paradigm of looking at these methods. So we've all had that situation where you wake up in the morning you feel like, crap, you've done a ton of work, and you're like, there's no way that I can live today and I have a training session. Like, I'm going to die. My leg's about to fall off. Then you get in, you warm up, and everything's good. It's one of the best workouts that you've ever had. And so I think some of these performance metrics like uh, you know, vertical jumps, counter-movement jumps, or maybe some depth jumps with these other devices might be a performance indicator for that day where your brain's telling you're fatigued but your body's actually performing, you might be able to get a session in that day. So I think that that technology is it's on its way up, but it definitely needs to be validated and uh, the metrics make sure that they're actually giving you what they need. And that might be a way to get some performance metrics within a given day. That's dope. Yeah, that sounds pretty awesome. Yeah, we're going to have you on another podcast when uh, when you do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, man, just... Uh, Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, they're pretty the two major topics we want to touch base on today. But, um, yeah, man, Chris, it's been it's been a pleasure. Yes, thank you for having me on, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course, man. Like you said, it was a pleasure to have you. You definitely got a lot of knowledge and information to put out there. So, now, When are you coming down to Florida, dude? Whenever you want. All right. Let I'll me know. Come down. I'll get you hooked up with my people. Hopefully you can do a study on them. That'd be great. I'd be more than happy to come down and get something going. Hell yeah. All right, Chris. We'll talk to you, brother. All right. Have a great night. Thanks again for joining us on today's episode of Pipe Hitter's Performance. And if you don't already follow us on Instagram and YouTube, I'll be posting those hyperlinks for those social media accounts in the description below, as well as Chris Tabor's Instagram account hyperlinks. So click those, give us a follow, and if you have any any input or comments for us, 
please leave feedback for us. We love feedback. We like to know what we're doing well, what we're doing, what we're doing wrong, how we can improve. So please, we look forward to hearing that feedback from you guys. And till next time, thanks for joining us.